From the Lean Enterprise Institute in Boston, this is the WLEI Podcast, where we share stories of people making the world better through lean thinking and practice. For more information about LEI, please visit lean.org. Hello, this is Alice Lee, Senior Coach at the Lean Enterprise Institute. LEI has worked with the Lynn Community Health Center for over three years. We've created a model clinic powered by lean thinking. Through this improvement, it became a focal point for the senior team to start to better understand, to see and learn what are the problems at the front. And so their transformation began. Learn how the Lynn Community Health Center is building successors at all level. In this case, we're talking about CEO to CEO, where there was a recent leadership transition, which became a catalyst for improvement. You'll hear from Laurie Abrams-Berry, the outgoing CEO, and Dr. Kiami Mahania, the incoming CEO, and how they exchanged a baton. How did they ensure that lean efforts would continue? What did the outgoing CEO do to ensure the continuation of lean thinking? And what made the incoming CEO realize that lean thinking truly was the way forward for everyone? We've been on our journey for less than two years. And so for uh, LEI through Alice Lee to have thought that we had something to contribute to the greater lean uh, community in the learning was really quite exciting. So Lynn, Community Health Center, which I'll probably refer to as Lynn throughout the talk, um, is a federally qualified health center. It is located in the coastal city of Lynn, which is about 10 miles north uh, of Boston. Like all FQHCs in the United States, we are a social justice institution. Our mission is to take care of anybody who shows up at our doorstep regardless of their ability to pay. So that means that we take care of people without insurance. We take care of people who are undocumented. We take care of people who are homeless or near homeless. We take care of people who have mental illnesses that are so severe that they have difficulty accessing mainstream institutions. And we take care of the poor and the very poor. 90% of our patients live at or at 200% of the federal poverty line. Two-thirds of our patients are better served in a language other than English. Our five biggest groupings of language are English, Spanish, Cambodian, Arabic, and Russian. We do this by providing comprehensive primary care and behavioral health services, and this includes dental and vision services. By necessity and by design, we've become a regional leader in the integration of primary care and behavioral health. We serve about 40,000 patients, which is about half of the city of Lynn. So I'll make a short pause there, because you're thinking, a lot of you are thinking, that's great. It's a wonderful institution, great mission, but why did LAI choose to partner with such a small outfit? And the background for that is that there are 1,300 community health centers in the US. We are all individual, but we are all connected. 
And when one of us finds something that is great at enhancing our mission, we are pretty quick to adopt it. We serve about 10% of the American population. But more poignantly, one in six of all Medicaid recipients receive their care in a community health center. One in three of all people who are uninsured receive care through the health center. So what about our own situation? Our budget is about 70% generated through our own operations. 5% comes from the federal government, and about 20 to 25% comes from grants and donation. Lynn, Lynn was once the shoe capital of the United States, and it was a hotbed of abolitionism. All the factories are now gone, except for GE Aviation, which maintains, maintains a presence. One of the distinguishing marks of Lynn is that we are a gateway city. We're an official city where immigrants get resettled by the State Department. So that means that every day, we have dozens of people coming from all over the world to start their American lives. And we, as a health center, guarantee their access to quality care. So everybody tells you that when a CEO leaves an organization that is invested in lean, that it all falls apart. So I'm here to tell you, I think it's possible for the lean transition to be enhanced by a change of CEO. I'm Lori Berry. I'm the former CEO of the Lynn Community Health Center. I was there for 21 years, which is kind of long for an organization like a community health center. And I was very interested in keeping the, the work we were doing on lean going and actually doing more. So it'd be natural when you're thinking of having a hand in picking your successor uh, or influencing the people that will be picking your successor to think of somebody who is as similar as possible to yourself to ensure constancy of purpose. So Lori is in her mid-60s. I am generously in my mid-40s, if 48 counts as mid. <laughs> Lori grew up in California. She grew up in the Bay Area and didn't leave the Bay Area until she was in her mid-20s. I spent my childhood in the ex-Belgian colony of the Congo, Den Zaire. I spent my teenage years mostly in Switzerland and moved to the US by the time I was 19. Lori is a hard-charging social worker, a product, of the flower generation who has never met an obscenity that she didn't later adopt. <laughs> I am a, a non-confrontational, consensus-seeking leader who grew up in a military dictatorship and who came of age as a black man in predominantly white spaces during the cultural wars of the 90s. So my interest in lean started really almost from the beginning. I, don't had, I didn't have words for it. We didn't call it lean back then. But I found myself always looking for something, some way of solving the problems that you could see uh, every time we produced a patient care visit, which is almost like any other uh, product that is, that is um, manufactured, I guess. 
I could see that there were so many different people in our, uh, in the health center that contributed to a visit that the coordination, the communication, the whole process, there are so many things that could go wrong and what, and frequently did. I was always just so relieved when I heard about a fabulous patient visit where everything went right. So essentially, Lori, to sort of harken back to the prophets of her religious tradition, was a prophet. She had intuited that there was something missing in her 20 years of being a leader in a community health center. There was a hole that she'd identified, and that hole was essentially a hand waiting for lean to fall in. I, on the other hand, did not have such a peaceful spiritual experience when it comes to welcoming lean. For me, it came from the fact that I had worked in four different health centers, and I was experiencing deep frustration. If you've ever been in social justice institutions, you will be impressed by the dedication and the passion that people bring to the work that they do. And yet, despite that, that incredible passion, that admiration that I had for my colleagues, and the occasional phenomenal talent that was in community health centers, generally the delivery of service, if you call it challenging um, or chaotic, that, that, that would be an understatement. So, Really what impressed me about Lean was this whole idea of developing staff. It wasn't just about improving the process, it was really about developing staff and getting them engaged and enthusiastic about the work. And you know, from the beginning of our work with Lean, that was what impressed me, is I had enthusiastic staff at every level where before I had people who were looking at their watch, you know, when is it time to go home? Um, you know, sometimes looking a little less happy um, at, in the workplace. This was different. Curiously enough, for someone with aforementioned consensus-seeking values, it wasn't that employee engagement that really spoke to me about Lean. So let me give you some background. The happiest day of my life occurred in July of 1989. I actually know that day and I can still see it. Embarrassingly enough, especially when my wife is present, uh, it wasn't my wedding day. Um, it wasn't the birth of my two wonderful children. It wasn't even the day my family escaped the Civil War uh, in the Congo, nor is it uh, achieving all those honors and awards that my parents are great at trotting out uh, to their neighbor when they're emptying out the trash. Um, what, was, what really, the, the day is actually crystallized in a moment, and that moment occurred in the Brussels airport. I had just landed from Kinshasa in the Congo, and I was taking my green passport, my green Congolese passport, I was putting it away, and I was bringing out the one that has the golden eagle on a blue background on it. That's for, the, for those of you guys who don't remember, that's your American passport. And <laughs> please don't misunderstand me. I will always feel that the Congo is where my truest destiny lies. I will always feel that that's where I should be and that that's really where I belong. 
but what I was escaping and what millions of young people like me were escaping was the complete absence of hope. Essentially living in the Congo meant that you were given one guarantee and that is that you in no way, shape or form could control or shape your own future. And it was that that I was escaping and it's that even at that age, at 19, I knew confusedly that's what was happening and that's why it was the happiest moment of my life. And unfortunately, uh, my fears um, did come true. Um, and uh, within a few years, our house was looted uh, by mobs. My father was on the run. Most of my family and colleagues uh, or colleagues of my father uh, were in prison. And the first few hundreds of what would become over five million dead uh, were lying in the streets in Kinshasa. And I realize, or I realize now, that the frustration that I felt in community health centers was I was, I, I hearkened back to that hopelessness that I felt in the Congo. And I felt that that acceptance of mediocrity that we had in community health centers was similar. It was this sort of, ah, what can you do? Things are really bad. And so we all, the only response we had in community health centers was essentially to bear the cross and accept things the way they were. And I think lean represented for my professional life what that Brussels moment had represented for my personal life. It represented a way out of that path of despair that I saw in community health centers. It represented a possible path to deliver a great product. I think it was the fall of 2015. Um, I had a new, essentially a new senior management team. Some people had left, um, some new people were there. And I thought it was a really great opportunity to do something together. And all our previous efforts on uh, performance improvement, I was the one, you know, telling everybody that's, <laughs> that's what we should do. Uh, we called up the GE Foundation and asked if they would help finance a visit to ThetaCare, which was a hospital system in Wisconsin that was doing a lot of great work on lean. And we thought we'd have a lot to learn from them. And even though this was February and most people in their right mind would not go to <laughs> Wisconsin in February, I think it was seven or eight of us got on a plane, thank you GE Foundation, um, and went to visit uh, ThetaCare. And we learned a lot of different things. So it was a little intimidating actually, but the main thing that I took away was that this whole idea of creating a, a true North and focusing our efforts on a few things. You know, I was of the mind that if you're a community health center and you're serving a community with people with multiple needs, that the more things you could do, the better. So this was not intuitive for me. I kind of thought, really, only a few things? <laughs> How am I going to deal with that? But I think that really got us started as a team thinking about lean. And so this was no longer really about me, which was different, um, but it was really about all of us working, to, working together. So in essence, Lori was sending us a message. She was saying, if you wanted to be on her team, you had to accept that the status quo that we had had to be rejected. She was testing us. She was asking us, 
Who is willing to change their mental model? Who is willing to be humble enough to let go of the very paradigm that led us to become senior managers that was responsible for our success? And that we realized that as a group, maybe we didn't share very much, but what we did share was a complete hunger to change things for the better. So while I was chewing about um, Theta Care and how they managed to prioritize everything, you know, I, I'd been thinking about, I'd been talking to Alice Lee um, at the Lean Enterprise Institute, and she kept saying, you know, if everything is a priority, then nothing is. So I kept asking, well, how do we get started? I mean, this was the, it's a little, you know, it's a little bit um, intimidating going to an organization like ThetaCare that's been at Lean for a dozen years or more, and here we are just, just learning about it. So her um, recommendation was to start with a, a, what she called a model cell. So in our, in our way of thinking, that would have been one team or maybe a part of a team, a primary care team that would have some protected time to learn about lean and start um, thinking about their processes. So this was um, quite a significant step. The, the step that I'm talking about is that she essentially was taking her authority as CEO, and those of us in the audience can tell you she was a very strong CEO. She was taking that authority and saying, I am investing part of my authority in outside source of reference to an outside standard. I will be on the journey with you. You will hold each other accountable, but I'm also opening myself as CEO to be held accountable to this outside source of wisdom. So the blue team seemed like the obvious group. They were the most interested in doing it. Um, but I was having a problem. And the problem I was having is that in a primary care setting, um, your revenue is based on the number of visits that you provide. We began. This is a crucial point for, for me at the time. Laurie never gave clinician time for improvement projects. She might give some time for retention, if someone threatened to leave, but she would never give time for improvement projects. So for me, that meant that Laurie was going beyond the theory of accepting lean, and she was committing to lean. And it led to a moment of clarity for me, which was, how was I going to prove to myself that I was also committing to the process of lean? And so that really started my journey, because I started reading, I started reaching out, I started asking for coaching, I started thinking, what's out there? we began. And that really was the right decision because what happened with the blue team was, I, I thought it was sort of miraculous actually. This was a group who um, started off thinking about the fact that on a, a visit where we had our internal lean specialist, Kim Eng, go to watch with our medical director of that team, a visit. They went, they went to look and see and a pretty simple, uncomplicated visit took more than two hours. 
And why? Well, I'm sure everyone in the audience knows it's, you know, things that happened. It was, you know, a lack of communication, lack of everybody knowing what was going on with the visit, of all the things that can go wrong in a process. Over time, this group became incredible. I was, I began to be, I began to go visit because it gave me, you know, with all the bad news about everything else, it was really fun to go see a team where all of the staff were really engaged in, you know, coming up with ideas, innovating. They had such great, interesting things on the wall that talked about all the different causes for why a visit might take a long time. Um, and, what, and they're measuring things. I, you know, they were, they were measuring things that I never, never occurred to me to measure. And the engagement of staff, I may have said this a few more times, but boy, it was really impressive. And so what started to happen is the teams nearby started to come along and copy some of the things that they were doing. And I remember Alice saying something about, you know, don't push, pull. Well, it began to be clear what that meant. And the, um, the team had come up with these, these little homemade flags to put on the, on the exam room so that everybody on the team would know what was going on in the exam room. Seems simple, doesn't it? But actually it was, it was profound. And at this point, I think every team in the health center is using some variation of these, of these flags because it makes visible what's going on with any patient at any given time. And you know, these simple things that you would think you could think of on your own I no longer had to think about them. And I began to realize that any idea I had was really not very interesting to the staff. The, the, the ideas that they had, knowing the process firsthand, um, were much more, much more important. So Lori was undergoing her personal transformation through the model cell. My transformation happened differently. LEI, one day brought in a co-learning partner. So as they began talking about what they were doing, uh, someone mentioned that they were working with a whole ministry in Brazil. And that's when my road to Damascus moment, the angelic chorus happened for me. Because I realized that if I became accomplished, if I was able to engage in this lean journey, and I was able to help transform the community health center, it meant that there was hope one day that in the Congo, somebody or somebody's would be able to accomplish the same thing. And essentially, I was able to marry the past and the present, that feeling, that fractured feeling that I had about myself. I was finding a way to present myself with a unified identity. So I was really excited about all of this, but I was getting along in years, shall we say and had made a decision to retire. But before I announced this to anyone, I started thinking a lot about how, how was I gonna help the organization continue this? Because it seemed to me that the work that we were doing was pretty amazing. And that if the next CEO wasn't really interested in lean, that a lot of this would go by the wayside. And I'd heard stories about other organizations where there'd been a change in leadership and so the work stopped. By that time, the senior, the senior team was already sold an idea of lean. We knew that this is the path I wanted to take. 
Now, mind you, there was a vast gulf between us thinking that lean was great and actually us incorporating lean thinking in our daily life and our daily routines. And we still tended to think that other people had to like engage in lean and we just had to do what we normally did. But nevertheless, uh, we fought a lot and we still do. We were unified in the sense that we knew that lean was the way forward. So really the next group to target was our decision makers, the board. I asked the board if they would be interested in a presentation by the blue team. We brought the whole team to the boardroom. All the staff gave a little piece of the presentation. Typically, the board was used to getting presentations by physicians only. This was really different. They were really engaged. And we brought the whole board over to the new space that we were building. And we had asked the blue team to do some of the redesign. This was at a time when the construction hadn't started, but we had prototypes and all sorts of things on the wall to talk about how the process, how much time does it take for each step in the visit and where should it happen and all of that sort of thing. So essentially, we were showcasing our successes to as many stakeholders as possible. And then luckily for us, um, the board chose our chief medical officer to be our new CEO. I do believe that it is easier when you have an internal hire to keep the continuity of interest in lean. But I suspect that some of the things that we did might have worked with an external hire too. I really do think so because the board was on board, the senior management team was on board, and, and staff were really beginning to get excited about this. Clearly, it was, it was infusing the culture, and I think, um, I think that's what made it possible. And I think what ended up happening, especially as we start to think about the succession, is that the process of implementing Lean at the Lynn Community Health Center was never about me. It was never about the internal lean leaders that we had that were teaching people how to use lean. It was never about any single member of our um, senior management team. It was really about all of us. And I, I kind of think it became organic. And as a CEO, you know, you like to think that you're kind of, you know, leading everything. And the truth was that it worked a whole lot better when I wasn't. So this is the particular story of the Lynn Community Health Center CEO transition, and some of it is very particular to Lori and Kiame. And obviously, I'm hoping, we are hoping, that you're able to pull out some lessons that you can make use of in your own institution. But I think for me, there were four main points that I could distill in terms of the succession planning. Number one, when you look at the word succession, the root of it is success, right? And I think that we've bought into so much of the humility around lean that we forget to trumpet the successes that we have. And I think it's crucial for all the stakeholders that are around you to know that you are successful and to know that you are attributing that success to lean thinking. Now this requires some amount of stepping back because you're saying, hey, as a leader, I'm a vessel, I'm not the one. For instance, you know, when you look at John Shook, he's not on the cover of Newsweek magazine as the guru to the biggest companies. And second, I think that 
you have to identify people that, that have this twin and conflicting personality traits. They have to be both incredibly willing to admit that things are a total mess and yet be able to believe that it can be different. So those are almost two contradictory thoughts. And then three, I think it's essential that lean and lean thinking be set up as a source of independent authority and wisdom to which you as the CEO, as a leader, could be held accountable. You have to allow yourself to be challenged. And so now this is my contribution to the lean community. You have to be allowed to be challenged so that when someone tells you that's not very lean thinking, you have to acknowledge, wait for it, your lean deviant behavior. So that is my contribution to lean, the idea of uh, lean deviant uh, behavior. And the last point that I would make is that succession planning starts from day one. You have to constantly be thinking, who can I identify? Who can I, who can I develop? Who can I form? And not just for you, but throughout the, throughout the organization. And it doesn't matter at which point in the journey you are. Even if you're only doing what someone called random acts of lean, that's okay if that's where you're at or if you're at a more systemic place. Thank you. To learn more, join us at the Lean Summit 2020, April 6th to 7th in California. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at pod at lean.org. I want to give special thanks to Laurie Moniz and Emma Ripp for producing this podcast. Hope to see you at the Lean Summit.